This is the 966 episode 111. Three ones, one, one, one. Hello, Mr. Rich Wilson. One, 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 one. Hey, Mr. Ziegler. I, I just love how, again, I love how we're yap, yap, yapping about this and that, and then it's time to go. 40 minutes of conversation before this, we were trending a little behind and we have uh, daylight savings time now in on the east coast of the US. So it's significantly darker uh, if we're recording we're, at a certain then, time. Then we look up and you go, all right, I got, I got, you know, 40 minutes before I got it. The kids are, you know, it, it will not make this possible. Let's hit it. And then we're in. And then you do your intro. Very smooth, very professional. <laughs> dulcet, dulcet tones. Of dulcet tones. I wonder if anybody... Uh, that I meet in real life wonders if I sound funny in real life compared to the podcast or that you sound funny. I don't, I don't know, but like, I feel like when I edit this, you don't sound funny to me, but I can't stand the sound of my own voice. I'm like, God, I sound that way. How do I, I <laughs> you every know, time, everybody every says time, that though. I sound like if people think I'm going to, you know, they're going to meet me and say, are we in a bottom of a well? Cause I always, I always think I sound like I'm in the bottom of a well, you know, it's not clear. It's fuzzy and muddy and everything. And I'm going, what is wrong with me? So that is funny how we're all, you know, critical of our, our, our impressions. Sure. And uh, for the previous two, I guess the, the two of the interviews we've done recently, there was a camera issue <laughs> that Mr. Wilson had that was stuck on, I think some sort of like, grungy 80s filter <laughs> it, like it was like a rock and roll cover and so for our youtube fam enjoy that it's pretty funny and <laughs> we'll call it we'll call it richard back from the dead <laughs> so yeah halloween themed it and it necessitated a new camera which i can't actually believe fixed the problem but it did you look normal again well, so good to have you well, back that's, and that's frightening in and of itself but <laughs> Maybe less than the black and white spectral skeletal version that we've had in the last two two episodes. So, Richard, this week we've got a really awesome conversation. They're all awesome. So I, don't, I feel weird saying it every week, but each week I can't believe we say this at the beginning of the episode because it's just kind of amazing. But this week we'll be speaking with Tim Callan, who is formerly the IMF mission chief to Saudi Arabia. And now he's a visiting fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, an economist. And we're going to be talking all about the Saudi economy um the population i mean gdp like every single metric this guy knows it inside and out did it and held it in his hands and worked with top saudi officials for over a decade so it's just really cool i think that's well put and i just feel so fortunate like walking around and finding each episode like we find a hundred bucks in our old pair of jeans you know because tim has just an extraordinary amount of experience and access, like we talked about, like you just said, you know, over a decade with IMF, he's seen that he's seen it from inside out. He's seen it over time. Just a terrific conversation. Mm -hmm. And hats off to my co-host as well, because uh, Tim has written some really good stuff recently for the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, which is also exceptional, a really great organization. And Richard contacted him was like, hey, we need you on the podcast. You got to come on. <laughs> yep. And so that, that's a really fun conversation coming up. Before we do that, just a reminder, please subscribe to us wherever you're getting this. YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, lots of audio listeners. Our audio listenership, all the listenership goes up, but the audio especially. So uh, that's really cool to see. A ton of feedback last week on this week on last week's episode with Maria Medvedeva. She's got a huge following on LinkedIn, especially, and deservedly so. She's terrific. So uh, too many comments here, but she had like a fan club join, join the 966 <laughs> for on our various segments and our audio pages saying, good job, Maria. That was incredible. And it was. So 
Yeah, Thank you to Maria. Yeah. This one's from Trimex. Sorry to hear you miss FII, Lucien. On a different topic to discuss, will you be talking about the government balance of oil, non-oil revenue, national account report, uh, report was released last week and the latest CPI data, mainly driven by real estate, et cetera. Oh, Trimax, you are going to love this segment coming up with Mr. Tim Callan. We waited to read that comment because we knew we'd be getting right into it. So <laughs> there you go. Um, this one from Emma Gutard, 2576. Gutard in French, Richard, uh, in French. Okay, super, uh, super. So, uh, super. You need a casino here in Neom to compete compete with Las Vegas. This was on this. Okay, cool. I got it. Sorry, <laughs> left myself a little French in my notes here, and then had to translate it on the you know, fly. It happens um, to all of us. <laughs> yeah, uh, she, the comment was on um, the segment we did on Neom and the resorts there. I don't know, Emma. I don't know if they're going to be putting a casino in uh, Neom, but maybe. Well, there's uh, lots of, there's always lots of speculation, hot and heavy, you know, because there's alcohol speculation and everything else. So, we, you know, we'll, we'll know when we know is the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. There's been alcohol speculation for a while. I still yeah. don't know. Uh, this one's from Abu Faisal 91. Love this show, you guys. Listening to you on Sunday morning is a ritual now on my commute in Riyadh. Traffic helps to make it go by faster, but you might need to do longer and longer shows as traffic is getting worse and worse with everyone moving to Riyadh now. Uh, Abu Faisal, you may be the first and only person to make ask us to make the shows longer. We have many requests to make it segmented and in different formats, but thank you. That's the first. We should do uh, we should do an Abu Faisal version where we we include our our chatter beforehand. Uh, you know, just because to make it longer, you know, and then he can. It might it might outlast Riyadh traffic, but probably not. <laughs> yeah, um, just like the Truman Show, it's just. 24 7 365 is on us all the time um yeah thank you for that comment and you can uh, send us an email as well at the 966 podcast at gmail.com and just or like just on any social media linkedin just whatsapp whatever just send it to us and you know we appreciate it so anyway a lot of chatter here richard let's get right into it what's your one big thing it's um both of us are sort of cross marketing on our one big things uh this one is really, it's a shorty. Uh, as hopefully some of our listeners, most of our listeners caught um, Mansour Al-Zahab and Zainab Kosarisalu. Zainab Kosarisalu. Thank you, our, our linguist. Mm -hmm. um, at uh, episode 108 uh, on the Riyadh, I mean the regional headquarters program. It was an awesome one. And anyway, so we had a little note recently, and I saw it basically in an interview with Bloomberg, uh, Minister of Investment Khaled Al-Fala commented that Saudi Arabia has outperformed its target for attracting regional headquarters with over 180 companies now established in the kingdom. This number surpasses the initial goal of securing 160 HQs by the end of 2023. Al-Fala added that, quote, the rate is picking up to the tune of 10 companies per week that are being licensed in Saudi Arabia, and they are being provided with a good set of incentives, unquote. It is interesting, Lucian, folks we talked to as this last sprint, you know, to, to January 2024, where people are trying to get under the wire or, or understand what the requirements are, what the package they're going to get. Um, but Alfala emphasized that the regional HQ program is part of a, quote, long-term journey, unquote, adding that the kingdom is working with international entities to create the right ecosystem to open offices in Saudi Arabia. 
some of the noted companies that opened their regional headquarters in Saudi Arabia in recent months are uh, PwC Middle East and GE Healthcare. He added that the kingdom has a friendly and stable jurisdiction for international investors at a time of geopolitical tensions and economic headwinds. I think this is interesting because he's essentially putting out Saudi Arabia as a stable haven, you know, an island. Uh, and he, this is further to that quote, uh, quote, beyond the current situation in Europe and the Middle East, people will look around and find Saudi Arabia is the best destination to invest in. It is happening now, and we believe we will transition through the set of crises going on now, and Saudi Arabia will continue to be a very attractive destination for investment, unquote. Um, I thought this was interesting because one of the things we talked about when we talked to Mansoor and Zainab was the, the RHQ was first mooted in 2019. The sort of details first came out in February 2021. And you recall, there was a lot of consternation. You know, this is, you know, this is a broadside to the Emirates. And, and what are the details? What does it mean? So it's, it's encouraging. And it's also a little bit trend-like in that Saudi Arabia, like the tourism numbers and other things, are, are, are overshooting the numbers. You know, they, they were looking for 160. They're at 180. They'll probably be at 200 when the, when the, you know, January 1st gets here, there'll be others getting under the wire. But uh, this is really important in terms of their interest in becoming a, you know, a, a center of business. And, uh, you know, these regional HQs are in place because they want to be jobs generators. They want to be talent attractors. Um, and they're getting together a nice critical mass of, significant players, significant multinational corporations that have decided, okay, we'll make this leap. And they've done it, you know, they've offered incentives and that sort of thing. So one of the interesting things about it is, so for example, and I think there's probably a whole slew, when somebody goes in to negotiate, there's probably a whole slew of, of possible incentives. I mean, at least two known ones uh, is that um, you can be exempt from Saudiization. And I, you know, there'll be refinements of this, but in terms of doing business, you you obviously want to want to Saudi eyes. You want locals, but you know, if you can do that organically and not by mandate, that's a terrific advantage. You know, there's also in terms of attracting people, is that um, you can get uh, you know premium residency status for executives, another big bonus. So I think there's. You know, they put out a lot of incentives, but we're seeing, and, and that's why this Khalid al-Fala comment was, was notable, we're seeing that, A, the decision, the, the, the proposal was feasible, and B, it's resulted in a really nice return in terms of people making the commitment to come to Riyadh and all the good things that ensue from this decision to come to Riyadh instead of their headquarters. So that's my one big thing, short but sweet. And it's a good one. It's a big thing going on in Saudi Arabia right now. And, you know, it's interesting because it's not really surprising, at least for me, Richard, and I won't speak for you, but it's not really surprising that it's having a very positive effect because if, if you're looking, if you're the Saudi government, if you're authorities in Saudi Arabia, you're saying, 
why are we giving away this, these government contracts that are extremely, tremendously lucrative to organizations that are based in Dubai and are hiring people in Dubai that are taking that flight over? And I've done it a few times in the past few months where you're leaving Saudi Arabia Thursday evening and you're getting on the flight to Dubai. And I just happen to be on that flight and it's all dudes in westernized suits going home for the weekend. It's like Saudi Arabia does not want that and they don't want these government contracts to go to companies that are doing that. So for Saudi Arabia, it makes a lot of sense for the companies. It makes a lot of sense because we're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about government contracts that are lucrative, that are huge. So they're going to go where the money is. And, you know, the quality of life issues that people questioned at the beginning, oh, well, is it going to be as good as living in Dubai or is it going to be as good as living somewhere else? And, you know, as in Riyadh, well, Saudi Arabia is working on that. They're I mean, there's so much more to do in Saudi Arabia. There's so many places to eat. There's it, the quality of life is improving every day. Schools are improving every day. But, you know, have they caught up to Dubai? No. But if you're the corporation, you're going to say, hey, guys, like we this is you have a job because this is we're working on this contract. And honestly, it also saves us money and time and productivity. You guys are going to be where you are working on this contract in Saudi Arabia. So it makes sense from both sides. You know, and if you take away the, oh, can Saudi compete with, you know, Dubai? And remember, we asked um, Zainab and Mansoor about this. And, you know, what is what is the UAE's response? Like, what is their retort? Are they going to do the same thing? And they essentially said, well, they don't have the same priorities that Saudi Arabia has right now. Saudi Arabia has to get these companies to be based there, not because they want, you know, they want to prove a point or they want to one up Dubai, but because of the trickle down effects that you just talked about, there are enormous for Saudi Arabia. And it's all part of this holistic approach to improving the business climate in the kingdom and allowing preventing, I should say, money and talent from spilling over its borders every weekend. And, you know, at the end of the year, they want people living there and working there. So it's a really important topic. It's a, it's a good one, big thing. And I like your, the way you, you couch that. And you sort of holistic and it's good for everybody. I sort of see it as a virtuous cycle in the sense that Saudi Arabia put it out there. And then the, the, the pushback is, well, you know, what about restaurants, schools, blah, 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 all the things that make our life, quality of life really attractive in the Emirates. And so in order to support the regional HQ, and I'm not saying they, you know, it was the result of it, but you can see it working in tandem. Then they go about, all right, you know, they've been promoting restaurants, entertainment, working on schools, you know, simple things like premium residencies, like being able to use your international driver's license for the first year, you know, easy, any, all these things that they're going, okay, if we want regional HQ to be success, which we do, we need to eliminate some of these sort of perhaps seemingly minor, but real obstacles to people's quality of life and making the decision to come here and bring their families. So you get a, you get a nice push pull. I mm -hmm. think, and I think one of the things that Saudi has done a good job almost in every one of their um, initiatives, as far as I can tell, is is they've taken feedback and they've adapted regular regulations and requirements uh, based on good quality feedback. And, and so, anyway, I, I think it's it's I think your your term is good um, in terms of both sides winning, and I, I think it's especially good from Saudi because it does create a virtuous cycle where you put it out there and then you make the changes to make it happen, which is all good on both ends. Absolutely. And the Saudi Arabia of 2023, soon to be 2024, is very different than the Saudi Arabia of 2019 when this was announced. I think it was 2019 or 2018. It was, it was his first move to 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's four years of difference. And, 
you know, Saudi Arabia isn't making the quality of life better for this program. They're making the quality of life better because it's part of Vision 2030, just like this program is. So, like I said, holistic kind of just it's it's part of this development. I mean, people may say, well, I still prefer to live in Dubai, but yeah, it's still a lot better in Saudi Arabia today than it was a few years ago. And now it's becoming more of a serious, real decision. And if if your job is in Saudi Arabia and it has to be in Saudi Arabia, there, there it is. The decision's made and the benefit for Saudi Arabia on that is huge. So yeah, that's a huge, that's a big and a good one big thing, Richard. Um, my one big thing this week. Okay. We talked about this before the show and it's really a hybrid one big thing and sort of an announcement. It's actually three announcements and one of them is a one big thing. So I guess it's like a one big thing pinata. <laughs> and there are three announcements in the one big thing pinata from Lucian this week for the 966 fam out there. Um, so announcement number one, Richard, is that in just a few weeks in Riyadh, the Evolution Foundation, which our regular listeners will know well now, is the innovative new nonprofit foundation founded by Royal Decree in Riyadh that will invest billions of dollars a year into longevity science and which is chaired by His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and led by CEO, Dr. Mahmoud Khan. Um, our regular listeners will know about this, of course, because a few months ago, the discussion of the Evolution Foundation was Richard's one big thing after an article in the Wall Street Journal came out sort of detailing some of the incredible and potentially world-changing work being done there. And Richard, you and I discussed it then and got a lot of really good feedback on it. People were like, this is incredible and this actually directly affects me wherever I'm living. I mean, this affects well, all people. And, and just to be clear, me more than you. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about aging. Well, no, 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 because it's it's not length of life, right? It's quality of life uh, as you age. Basically, their focus is getting rid of disease and making your life a long one and a healthy one so you don't spend most of your life getting or as a sick person. And that's sort of just part of it. But the Evolution Foundation will be launching a coming out party of sorts for the organization in the form of some uh, in the form of a major global event held in Riyadh at the Four Seasons called the Global Health Span Summit. And this is a one big thing, really, because this is going to be a game changing style of event. Not only is this area of science completely new and until soon dramatically underfunded, there's never really been such a gathering of scientists, research institutions, innovators, entrepreneurs, investors, corporate leaders, government officials. There's never really been a huge mega event like this at scale like this for uh, the lifespan uh, science industry. It's a, it's a new industry. It's a, it's a new field. It's exciting. And this is an event that's really going to jumpstart everything, at least as we see it. Um, and again, this affects all of us, unless somebody is listening out there from a few decades into the future and the world has figured out how to live without diseases for, you know, healthy, long lives. And if so, I'm actually betting that that person is probably thankful for the Evolution Foundation's work in the future. <laughs> um, until that happens, this is a shared interest for all humanity. And so that's announcement number one. I mean, this is a huge event. It's taking place at the Four Seasons Hotel in Riyadh on the 29th and 30th of November. And, you know, really is going to, it might be, not be the type of thing you're, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to hear about it, but it may be one of those moments in history that doesn't have an enormous amount of fanfare at the moment, but that people look back on and say, this was really kind of the beginning of it all for the Evolution Foundation, for other foundations like it that are investing in this type of, type of science, for venture capital in this space. So it's going to be a, 
we predict going to be an absolutely massive event and one that has some of the best speakers, not just in this field, but government officials from around the world and other private sector leaders. It's going to be kind of lit, as the kids say, Richard. <laughs> um, and you can request the opportunity to register for it if you're local in Riyadh or if you want to go to it at hevolution.com slash GHS. And also see a lot more about the event there. We'll put a link to it wherever you're seeing this in the show notes. Um, and there's more to say about this event coming up, but let me come back to that in a moment. Announcement number two out of three in my great bag of goodies for the 966 listeners is that the 966 will be there at the event and we'll be doing a series of shows, interviews, and much more with many of the high-powered uh, conference speakers and leaders that'll be there. We'll be doing some of it. I don't want to say live, Richard, necessarily, because I don't know what that means. I'm not sure <laughs> if that is possible or what that really is, but there's going to be a feast of content that we will be there producing. And so all of you hitting us up in recent months about you know, more shows and doing this daily, which is hard, really hard to wrap your head around. Um, you're going to get a smorgasbord of content we're going to be doing. And we'll have more on this in, in the coming weeks, uh, the coming days, I should say. It's the events in a few weeks, but we'll have sort of shorter interviews. There are going to be so many interesting people there, and we're just going to go right into it, Richard, and, and try to speak to as many of these leaders as we can and figure out what's going on. So it's going to be a really cool content offering that we're going to be doing. Uh, we'll be there in person. This will actually be the first podcast we've done in person together. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, just a really perfect opportunity for us to provide a broad look and access to some of the biggest movers and shakers in this really new space. Um, and yeah, I mean, after we did your one big thing on this, we sort of discussed this is a huge deal now. This foundation is actually really rad and potentially game-changing. So let's stay on it. Um, so that's announcement number two. A few weeks, we're going to be taking the show on the road to Riyadh for the foundation's launch. Come say hello if you're there. Enjoy Please. all the interviews, snippets, and stuff we'll be putting out. And then Richard, announcement number three and the crown jewel of my bag of announcements in the, the pinata. pinata. Yeah, the pinata. Uh, probably the biggest one. Definitely stoked about this. Next week, we will be welcoming onto the 966 as our special guest, the CEO of the Evolution Foundation, Dr. Mahmoud Khan, to talk about the event, give us some exclusive and unique access into the work behind the Evolution Foundation, his team, the vision for the work, some exclusive insights into how the organization is taking shape, what they're doing next. We even ask them what is exciting in the field that they're going to be investing in and, and giving grants to and research. For those who do not know, Dr. Khan, he's got this incredible life story, medical doctor, Mayo Clinic, pharma executive, chair of the visiting committee on advanced tech at NIST, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, vice chairman and chief scientific officer of R&D at PepsiCo, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, had his own biotech company, got started in Riyadh as a young doctor. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And not just that, the work he's doing now is amazing and he's just like this incredible communicator so this is going to be just a really incredible opportunity for us richard to speak with him and for everybody to hear about what um evolution is doing on the 966 next week in advance of the global health span summit and our first live-ish production series of productions and conversations we'll be doing there so that is my one big thing my one big thing pinata of par excellence <laughs> and <clears throat> Like like every pinion, it, it brings delights to all of us. That was a good one. Thank you. <laughs> it showers us with delights. That was awesome. And um, yes, we are so excited about this opportunity to be there. But I am just, you know, I'm trying to 
you find some way to convey this evolution foundation. And I guess the, the, the thing that comes to mind is the moonshot. And, you know, the, the Apollo moonshot program, NASA, that NASA did uh, in the 60s and 70s, was a, a fascinating exercise where you had a significant amount of funding put into a, a scientific exploration, in essence, you know, a, an effort to, to take this shot, implement something, see what the scientific returns are, what can be gained. And by the way, this is would all benefit humanity. It's not going to benefit Americans solely. You know, it, it benefits the globe just in this evolution. It's not just Saudi. You know, I think that the, this, the area is geroscience is, you know, the, the term um, and what, you know, the evolution foundation is doing is saying, all right, this is, this is a, a sector that's on the cusp of some tremendous breakthrough that is conversely enormously underfunded and that we can come in and we can fill these gaps and build up these things and take these ventures and take these, these, these moonshots on, you know, potential technologies or science or discoveries or that sort of thing. And in the course of that, maybe we'll find some profoundly transformative answers. And, and, and we think this is worth it. And I just think it's a fascinating story. It's a great thing. I, I, I'm so impressed with it. And, and I'm so excited to be there. And, and this, this Global Health Span Summit will be, you know, like, like you said, a sort of the first of its kind convention of all the players involved, all the way down to the ethicists and, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, it's just, uh, it's just a really an interesting story. And, it's, and I'm sure it's a narrative that we will follow. And I'll we use the term moonshot again, because I kind of like it. I think you're on. Are you on mute? Sorry, I was muted. My bad. Um, Trying to keep the background noise from the soon to be arriving children here. Um, just wanted to add, and we're going to get to our interview here in a second uh, with IMF mission chief, a uh, former IMF mission chief to Saudi Arabia, Tim Callan, which is super good. But I just wanted to add the last little piece of that is, Again, like what is interesting to, about Evolution Foundation to us is sort of like what is interesting about Saudi Arabia to us. It's not one subject, it's many subjects. So this week we're going to go really, really neck deep into the Saudi economy and the and Saudi fiscal policy. And then next week we'll be discussing the Evolution Foundation on very advanced technology and investments into anti-aging and wellness and living longer. And then the, the next week we may have a executive on here and then we may be interviewing some, uh, you know, uh, what artists and rock stars and drone experts. And w for us, we have many interests. The Evolution Foundation has, this is going to be quite the show. So we're yeah. stoked. Definitely. You'll hear more on the 966. About You're going to hear more. Yes. Yeah, stay tuned. Let's get to our conversation with Tim Collin. We are pleased to be speaking now with Mr. Tim Callan, visiting fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and formerly IMF mission chief to Saudi Arabia. Tim was also head of the GCC division at the IMF from 2012 to 2021. Tim's work and recent writing focuses on the economics of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf region, and his latest for the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington blog discusses how increased spending in Saudi Arabia raises risks to the Saudi budget excited to get into that and much more tim welcome to the 966 thank you very much uh, very happy to be here and looking forward to our discussion 
Hi, Tim. You've, uh, as we were laughing about this morning, as you can see from my spectral down in the basement, you know, uh, video, <laughs> we, we had some technical difficulties this morning. Appreciate your patience. But more importantly, I, I'm really, we are really excited to have you on. First of all, I think we need to give a shout out to the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. You are a scholar there. They have a, a, a tremendous lineup of analysts, scholars, experts. Um, and we draw from them uh, often for the 966. Delighted that you are now affiliated with them, Tim. And because I want to riff a little bit on on what Lucian said on in his intro, you have you've had extraordinary access to uh, finances and economics as you're, you know, as, as IMF's mission chief for Saudi Arabia for close to a decade. And then, you know, um, you essentially led the IMF's research program on the GCC region. So uh, the nature of IMF is you have full and complete access, really. Is this correct? Yeah. I mean, of course, we, um, you know, at the IMF would be there writing our annual, you know, health check of the Saudi economy, meeting with, uh, you know, senior economic leaders in Saudi Arabia, but also, you know, more than that, having an ongoing relationship throughout the year via other visits, um, you know, research reports, attending uh, conferences. Um, really, you know, the main focus of the IMF is, you know, usually with the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank. And I think that was clearly the case also in Saudi Arabia. But of course, under Vision 2030, the reforms are going way beyond the you know fiscal monetary financial area so it was important that we you know meet other uh, ministries uh, senior officials in you know economy housing um you know tourism energy and so on and of course you know meet the private sector businesses banks um you know business councils and so on to get a broad picture so yeah, I think you know it's fair to say we you know we have very good access to the uh, the Saudi policy making framework at the IMF. Of course, I have to talk now in the past tense, not in the in the present tense, because I'm no longer with the IMF. But uh, that gives you a sense, I think, of you know sort of uh, how things you know I'm sure still are um, for the for the current mission team as well. Well, and we want to draw on all that expertise and background. The the sort of the initiating uh, factor in our reaching out to you, and and uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Was you wrote an interesting, very interesting article in, in the Arab Gulf States Institute's um, you know publications entitled "A Smaller Saudi Population Puts Key Economic Indicators in a More Favorable Light." And this for for our listeners, Saudi Arabia completed last year. Uh, its latest census, um, and it's only had five. It's had census, you know, a census since 1974, 1992, 2004, 2010, and now in 2022. It, it's, this is a big deal for any country, but I felt, and I think Lucian probably agrees, it sort of went by with not as much focus as it needed. And, and so I was really struck when you wrote this article. And what I'd like to do, if we can, is let's, let's, let's start with that your findings what's your sense and we can move on because i know i don't want to i don't want to limit your economic and analytical expertise because you've written also on economic diversification as lucian mentioned you know written on you know the risk of uh, spending rises but let's talk with the census what was your take why were you motivated to write this article 
Yeah, I mean, so I started at the uh, the Arab Gulf States Institute at the beginning of July, and you know, one of the first things I noticed was the uh, the you know the census that we'd been waiting for. At least part of the census has, had been published by the Statistics Authority, and I thought it was very interesting because that, as you said, there hadn't been or wasn't a lot of coverage of the census and what there was tended to be quite negative in the you know, the association of you know a smaller population i think is you know associated with you know probably less you know political power less you know influence and you know i think well you know from an economic point of view it's of course not all bad actually to have a, a smaller population in the sense that you know, one you're going to have less pressure on infrastructure um you know you you'll need less housing less roads etc if your population is lower um you know the, than you otherwise would but it also makes some economic indicators actually better so anything you know that's uh you know per capita terms that we're dividing by the population um is going to look better so gdp per capita will have increased and there are also i think implications although you know, at the moment, because not all of the census data has been published, we, we don't know. So particularly, I think the labour market module, which is still to come, is going to be super interesting. But a smaller population, and I think it's important here to say that most of the, you know, the reduction in the estimated population comes from Saudi nationals rather than from the expatriate population but it could well have implications in terms of the level of productivity in the Saudi economy. You know, so if we find out there's actually less employment than previously estimated, which seems a possibility given the lower population numbers, it would mean output per worker is higher. Or another thing that could happen is that labour force participation rates may be higher um, if that's the case. I think particularly given Vision 2030 has... Um, you know, a very clear um, desire to increase female labour force participation rates, which it's achieved, but it's possible actually those participation rates could be higher than are currently measured. None of this we can be certain about until the um, until the you know the remaining uh, modules of the census are published. But I think it's a, it's a possibility, and I think maybe one last point before I stop on this is it's also important to recognise that while the estimated population is lower now than than would previously been estimated, um, it still means the population is growing. We've still seen population growth over the last decade. And they've seen some press coverage saying, you know, the population has declined. Um, that's not true in absolute terms. It's only it's declined relative to earlier or it's lower than earlier estimates uh, made it out to be. So, and let's speak to that, because the, the census found there were 32.2 million Saudis, or the population was 32.2 million. I think that's, you know, going into it was somewhere around 34 million, that it would come in around 34 million. So it, it's, a you know, a slight, you know, slightly less than anticipated. It's still, you know, over 2010, a 34 you know, plus 34% increase or eight, you know, over 8 million. Um, uh, Saudis make up uh, 58, just over 58% of that, correct? 18.8 .8 million. Um, 
uh, and with regard to the census, and I think it's interesting because it's something maybe we can revisit, uh, the census has uh, sort of released detailed data on three categories, population, households, and housing, yet to come, and I had anticipated that it would be here by <clears throat> the end of the year, are detailed uh, data on education, health, employment, income, migration, and diversity, all of which would be very important to understand and, and, and see and, and see what the trend lines are. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, all of those areas are uh, particularly important. Maybe you uh, Let's focus on a couple. I mean, clearly, you know, one is education, as you say, which I think is a central plank of, um, you know, efforts to diversify and grow the Saudi economy in the future is going to be, you know, making sure that the education system from, you know, all the way through from, you know, primary school or even, you know, improving uh, pre-K all the way through PhD level um, making sure that, uh, you know, Saudi nationals and, and others who study in the country have the education and skills that's going to be needed in the sort of type of labor market and uh, economy that Saudi's trying to develop under Vision 2030. So having a good baseline through the census on where we stand with education, I think is going to be very important. And then secondly, in the labor market, Again, you know, I think there is so much focus on labor market issues um, in Saudi, you know, and rightly so. Um, there's a big transformation going on in terms of more women coming into the workforce, more Saudis working in the private sector or certainly the non-government sector than in the past. And I think, again, having accurate information that the census uh, should be able to provide us um, on these areas is super important to provide an accurate baseline for policy makers to use going forward. Um, you know, as I said, I think that the, you know, the modules that have been released imply there are going to be important changes in the labor market data, which of course then will filter into the quarterly labor market statistics that um, GA stat uh, you know, publish. Um, but I'm uh, very much uh, interested and looking forward to seeing this new data when it's released. Yes, what based on what's released, what in your opinion, what's the most uh, most important or the, the 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 most notable data point coming out of this census for you? And I want and I want to move you know let's let's move on into the your discussion of economic diversification how it's going but you know yeah. from this census what what do you think what's the meaning the most meaningful takeaway? Well, I I think you know clearly the the headline and probably the most you know meaningful is the lower population estimate in that I think it does have implications across you know how we interpret a number of uh, of economic series. Um, I think you know it still is unfortunate that there isn't a better explanation coming out from the statistical authorities on why the um, the population estimates have been you know revised down. Um, and to me, it was you know certainly surprising that most of the downward revision was in the Saudi population because I'd always thought it was likely much harder to measure accurately the expatriate population 
than the Saudi population. So I think um, you know having a better understanding of you know what the the factors were behind the the estimate is going to be important. But I think you know as it stands, the lower population is um, you know is probably the key thing because it has implications you know not only for how we interpret current economic outcomes but it also is going to have important implications looking forward because if you have a lower population again you know five years then you know 10 years in the future than you thought you were going to have that is going to have implications for you know how you build out your infrastructure you know what you're going to need in terms of you know if it's going to affect the um you know how you know the number of children going through school age and so on how you need to plan your education health all of these sorts of things so i think that's that's really key you know maybe one other thing that's worth mentioning here as well is the the publication of data on the nationalities of the expatriate population which you know i think is something you know many people have been interested in seeing for a number of years and it's always been a bit of a you know, guesstimate as to where the, um, you know, where the relative standings of, um, you know, um, foreign workers from different countries are. Now we have a, a baseline on that as well from this census, which I think is in, important to help understanding as well. Yes, there is sort of an accepted uh, understanding that X nationality is the largest expatriate community. Or, and, but it will be interesting to get real numbers on all this. Um, just for our listeners, uh, what, the, the census found that the median age, Saudi Arabia's population median age is 29. And as we as often discussed, you know, it's a young population with, with over 63% of Saudis under the age of 30. Um, so again, that's a sort of a common theme, how young the population is. Um, what, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, another article you wrote for Arab Gulf states, and that was on economic diversification. How is it, how it's going? Uh, does this tie in at all with that? And and then we can yeah. move into what your findings were on that, yeah. in that article. Well, I mean, I, I think it does right clearly because, um, you know, sort of the size of your population and then the additional, you know, information we're going to find out about, you know, sort of the current standing of the labor market, you know, education system and education levels is all going to be um, really important in terms of how, you know, diversification and indeed the need for diversification going forward. I mean, going back to your point about how young the Saudi population is, you know, we're still, I think, at the early stages of um, the population coming into the workforce. Of course, you know, we see, you know, a number of young people coming in, but there's still a lot of people in school who are going to be coming into the uh, into the labour force in the coming years. And of course, for them, getting jobs and, you know, interesting, well-paid jobs is going to be, um, you know, going to be hugely important to them. And what's that going to require? Well, it's going to require, you know, strong growth in the private sector, you know, a move up the value chain, I think, of Saudi production. And that's all part of diversification. So, I mean, I think the link between, you know, the 
the need to diversify to create jobs and the young structure of the Saudi population is probably one of the key drivers of the ambitious reforms under Vision 2030, that recognition that all of these people can't be employed in the government sector um, the economy needs to be diversified if these people are going to be economically satisfied going forward. So I see it as a as a close link um, between the two. Well, and, and apropos of that, one of the data points that still has to come out is education, which is so fundamental to you know their efforts to diversify. Um, you know yeah. where where are young Saudis being? You know what skills are they learning, and will they translate into a you know a, a diversifying economy? I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, if we look on you know one side, and I think very positively, um, you know, a lot of um, young Saudis going to university. I mean, it's interesting. I think that we see more women um, or young women going to university than young men in Saudi Arabia. We've also seen the overseas scholarship program that was implemented, which has, you know, pushed a lot of Saudis through, um, schools in the US, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but I think what we see at a broader level is, um, you know, probably wages, on average in Saudi being higher than productivity levels. And we did some work, you know, maybe four or five years ago at the IMF that looked at this. And if you look on a, you know, sort of cross country basis at the relationship between productivity and wage levels, Saudi and indeed, you know, most of the other GCC countries stand out as having wages which are too high relative to productivity levels, whereas countries like China are often the other way around. So in terms of becoming internationally competitive, it's going to be really important that productivity levels in Saudi go up. It's very hard to see wages in nominal terms coming down. So productivity is going to have to be boosted to make this desire of you know, having Saudi as a as a competitive, um, you know, base for an industrial sector, if that's going to come true, productivity levels are going to have to go up to make it um, to make that possible. Interesting. And you said, as you noted, you you stepped out of the IMF, you know, uh, situation um, in twenty twenty one. Is that correct? That's correct. Out of the staff, and then I worked in the Saudi Executive Director's office at the IMF for a year as an advisor. Right. So you're you're yeah. up you're up through last year. I mean, yeah. it, with regard to productivity, it's always the question. Have you seen any trend lines? And you know, did you see any trend lines? I mean, I I think in terms of you know sort of productivity from economic data. Last time I looked at it, it's still hard to see any change. Uh, but, of right. course, it's something that takes a while. There's a lot of volatility year to year. We've been through COVID, which has really messed up, I think, um, you know, longer-term economic analysis for a couple of years. But what I will say is, um, you know, as you said at the beginning, I, I worked on Saudi starting in 2012, finishing as the mission chief in 2021. And the quality of the staff that we interacted with across the uh, the different ministries and other government entities really improved significantly over that length of uh, that length of stay as the mission chief. Um, you know, I think you know the last three or four years really impressive young 
people, men and women, we were interacting with. Uh, very dynamic, very hardworking. Um, so if that you know personal interaction is any indication of where the economic measurement of productivity is going, I think it will be on an upward trend, um, just at least from what I've seen. I haven't seen it yet. It is fascinating. And, and you know, that these things you can't see in, in, unless, except over a, a period of time. Anecdotally, it's, that your point is very interesting because it seems to me, and Lucian, you can speak to this perhaps, um, it just seems to me that, you know, since the launch of Vision 2030, um, the focus on best practices, the focus on, on you know, more professional, accountable workplace um, has, and again, anecdotally, has resulted in just what you just said. It just it seems to, a, a, a notable and significant upgrade in terms of capabilities, um, attention to detail, focus on the job any number of things yeah i mean absolutely that's certainly my experience and you know i think as well you know the first couple of years i was you know traveling to saudi having meetings it would be incredibly hard to get a meeting after 2 30 in the afternoon in the government <laughs> right now um you know many of the government um seem to be you know i mean it's an exaggeration to say they're working 24-7 because that's clearly impossible. But, um, you know, they're working much longer hours, expectations for delivery are much, um, you know, more focused on timeline, quality of the work, um, you know, is, is much better. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, just the the expectations of what is expected um, in the government and then clearly, you know, elsewhere as well have, have changed. And I think also, you know, the younger people are, you know, probably many of them are more career focused maybe than other generations were. Um, and I think that that's, you know, delivering in the sense of, you know, they have a work ethic, they have career ambitions, and they know, you know, and want to deliver good work that gets the recognition and, you know, moves them forward in their careers. And it, it seems to start at the top. I mean, you know, the, the Crown Prince is sort of famous for his work ethic. Um, and I have had more than one leading business person say to me, say, you know, there used to be a time where we couldn't get ministers to pay attention or to respond or to be timely in any of their engagements. And now we have to race to keep up. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in the sense, you know, if one, you know, concern, you know, comes out of um, all of the reform efforts, it's maybe that, you know, things are moving so quickly and on such short deadlines that, you know, it may be hard to, um, you know, do a full analysis of um, of everything that's trying to be done and whether then, you know, programs in one area of the government may overlap or in some cases even contradict programs in other parts of the government. Um, you know, I, I think it's certainly true that a broader, you know, overall governance structure has been put on the economic reforms with the, you know, creation of the uh, Council for Economic and Development Affairs, CEDA. I think I've got the, the name correct, um, which I think is 
you know, been successful in terms of, you know, trying to get everybody on the same page for the reforms. But I do feel sometimes that things are moving so quickly that it can be hard to, uh, you know, to keep up with everything and to make sure that everything's been, you know, thoroughly reviewed and vetted before it's, uh, before it's pushed forward. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on now in Saudi Arabia. And you have you have particular insight because you're very familiar with the sort of traditional um, oil dependent states boom bust cycle. You know where where if there's a good year, all of a sudden there's uh, there's bonuses given out, there's uh, holidays awarded. You know the the government sector, public sector, you know grows, which as you know is a really sticky cost. That's a problem. Um, and then when, you know, when, when, uh, an investment obviously is up and then when, uh, you know, there's a, a revenues are down, you know, investment is pulled back and some, so you, it's, it's sort of a, a you know, a completely dependent on the revenue side. And what we have talked about on the 966, something we've thought is very important was, um, not only, uh, the, the Ministry of Finance, Sama, but in general, the budget process is much more transparent in Saudi Arabia. And that they have uh, tried to maintain fiscal uh, discipline or try and you know, stay within certain parameters in their fiscal spending, regardless of the revenue. And uh, we, we talked last year about 2022 being an extraordinary moment, really, where they had this tremendous inflow of revenue but they didn't really spend all of it. It didn't, you didn't all of a sudden didn't have an expansion in government employees. It, it was, it, I, we thought it was very responsible. We were very interested in what happens when the revenue contracts, which it has. And now they are deficit spending, um, you know, in order to keep a lot of these projects moving and energized. Can you talk a little about it? You wrote an article, Increased Spending Raises Risks to the Saudi Budget. Can you talk a little bit about the thought process and what's going on in Saudi? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I think this is an area where, you know, the glass can be uh, half full or half empty, right? I mean, you know, let's start off with the uh, half full side and say, you know, look, there's no doubt that there has been um, a huge strengthening um, of the budget process and fiscal transparency in Saudi Arabia um, over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, and I think it's noticeable how we've seen very little increase in civil service employment in um, in recent years. Now, as you said, in the past, oil booms have tended to lead to increased civil service employment, which is then very hard to reverse. Now, I think, and it's not completely clear from the data, what we have seen is probably an increase in contractual employment um in saudi as we've um as we uh, we've moved into these reforms contractual employment in the government sector i should say which you know is probably linked to the implementation of vision 2030 um and will clearly be um easier to reverse if it needs to be than the, than the increased employment in the past in the civil service um you know, we've certainly seen um, improvements, I think, in the contracting process, in the use of, um, you know, technology in the budget sector in terms of planning. We now have a, you know, three-year 
um, you know, spending window that is published. Um, so I think all of these are, you know, good changes. What I have to say I've been a little disappointed with recently is we have begun to see this, you know, older pattern of spending increasing as all revenues have increased the last year, um, year or so. So 2022 spending exceeded what was budgeted. Um, 2023, it looks like it'll exceed again what is budgeted. And if we look at, you know, the spending outcome projected by the Ministry of Finance in their uh, pre-budget um, statement relative to the outcome in 2021, spending will be about 20% higher. Now, that's much better than it was a decade ago when oil revenues were very high, right, and we saw big increases in spending, um, much bigger than the 20% over two years. But I think it's also, um, you know, it puts you in a more difficult position if oil revenues were to really go down in the future years and then you'd be back to probably having to rein in spending. I mean, to be honest, if the deficit is 2 to 3% of GDP, I'm not worried about that. Saudi Arabia has plenty of fiscal space. It can, you know, it can borrow. It has other ways of uh, financing that deficit. What I would be more worried about is if, you know, there's a much bigger decline in oil revenues and we're then looking at deficits of, you know, 10, 15 percent of GDP, then I think there would have to be a reaction on the spending side. Um which again is then sort of getting back into the you know the boom and bust on spending that we'd seen in in previous cycles, which I don't think is good for you know economic stability, planning for the private sector, and so on. Um, it seems uh, it seems during the pandemic, um, as you mentioned, they, two, two thoughts: their their debt is is low, and they also seem to. Uh, to, they have had success in going to debt markets. In other words, their 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 issuances are oversubscribed. So I think and at pretty good rates, and they I think they feel very confident that they can sort of backstop, uh, you know, a revenue deficit with with borrowing, and doing this in order to keep uh, some of the current investments and projects, you know, online and moving ahead. But as you say, that's not an unlimited trough. I mean, uh, you, they, you, they still need to stay roughly close to their expected spending. Um, also, it, you know, it, another thing that's changed a little bit, changed over the course of your time with IMF when you were looking closely at these th these numbers, is uh, the public investment fund. You know, you have spending now, you have significant spending that is uh, in under the auspices of the PIF, public investment fund. Um, so you have the, the government budget, but then you have PIF, which is making tremendously large investments and ongoing investments, which is interesting. Is, was that a challenge to track? What's your sense? Yeah, of that? Um, I mean, it, it certainly was a challenge to track when I was leading the missions to um, to Saudi because there was very little information available in the public domain. I think since the uh, PIF has started um, issuing debt, 
Um, then he just published um, financial statements, right? He does a more, you know, consolidated um, annual, you know, review as well. But, you know, even with the latest um, Sukuk issuance, there was a, um, you know, a debt circular publication that's available on their website and through the London Stock Exchange, which has a lot of information in there. Now, you know, it still, you know, doesn't have any everything I think an economist would like to see, um, you know, for example, it's very hard to work out what is the domestic spending the PIF is making each year, right? Um, you know, there are some data published that you can make, you know, informed inferences of that, but we don't know exactly. And I think from an economic point of view, you know, you would like to know exactly what the PIF is spending because, I don't really think at the end of the day it's that much different to what the you know the government itself is spending so I think a, you know an accurate way of how public policy is affecting the economy would actually to be to add up the spending of the central government plus the public investment fund maybe plus the uh, the national development fund as well but we're not really still in a position to be able to do that um you know so you know, the, the PIF is clearly a much bigger player than it was, um, you know, three, four, five years ago. Um, and with that, you know, being able to track it, its activities accurately from an economic point of view is becoming, I think, increasingly important. Yeah. Tim, um, we've sort of discussed this a little, we've sort of kind of moved around it a little bit, but and as you've seen from your arc uh, working with Saudi Arabia, the break-even oil price is a sort of very easy and handy tool for outsiders looking in to sort of see how Saudi Arabia is doing in general. It's convenient to sort of say it. Um, you wrote a piece earlier this year about why there are some pitfalls at really trying to understand the situation with just that metric. Can you sort of go through that with us a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there are, I mean, to my mind, three concerns I have with the break-even oil price, and some of it is how it's often interpreted. So I think, you know, the first is you often see in, you know, news articles, people saying, you know, Saudi may do this to oil production because it has a particular break-even oil price. But I think what that misses is, um, you know, what matters is actually oil revenues, right, for the budget and, you know, if I have to cut production to achieve a certain price, well, my oil revenues are actually going to be lower than I think because, you know, I've cut production to achieve that price. So it's a, it almost like, um, you know, the dog chasing its tail that the more I cut production, the higher the, you know, break even oil prices. And I could, you know, ultimately keep going in this, uh, this strategy of cutting pushing the oil price up, but I still may not achieve the, you know, the overall fiscal revenue target I need. Um, the second, I think, concern is, you know, going back to the, you know, in the case of Saudi, the PIF, the, the, the calculations that are normally done by the IMF or by, you know, private sector analysts focus on the central government and that's understandable because, you know, is again the you know the information on the PIF, while much improved, is still hard to come up with that spending number. 
But in reality, you know, the PIF is basically being financed from oil revenues as well. Um, so, you know, what you, um, you know, need if the PIF is spending, you're actually going to need a higher break-even oil pricing you would calculate off of the central government um, budget. And then the third um, issue is, and, you know, this again, I think, touches partly on what we've already discussed is, you know, it may not be that you actually need to balance the budget in every year. Um, you know, personally, I think Saudi, you know, you know, can quite easily finance, um, you know, relatively small fiscal surpluses, you know, let's say two, three percent of GDP. I don't think there'll be a problem with that. So the calculation is, you know, in a sense, based off a, a fiscal target, which in many cases isn't appropriate. You know, countries may need to run surpluses in certain circumstances, deficits in other circumstances. So, you know, you would, I think, need to rework the calculation to actually decide what is the appropriate fiscal target for the country. And I suspect it's unlikely to be that you're going to balance the budget each year. Tim, um, I guess one last question. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a big question. Um, I think it's fascinating, the, the, the categories that this census is going to focus on, population, households, housing, education, health, employment, income, migration, diversity. All these are, uh, you know, would be of great interest to the IMF, but also I think they're tr uh, of great interest to the, the Vision 2030 planners in Saudi Arabia. You know, it's a it's an opportunity to sort of take a take a look at where they are, what needs to be done, shortfalls, things they're they're accomplishing well. What's your sense? I guess it's a big question. Go anywhere. What's your sense of Vision Twenty Thirty? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think first of all, it's really important to go back. I guess to you know late fifteen well, second half of 15, early 16. And, you know, I, I think if you'd asked anybody in the second half of 2015, is Saudi Arabia going to implement the scale of reforms that they have done in the last five and six years, you wouldn't have found anybody who would have <laughs> expected them, right? <laughs> you know, not a single one. Not, not a single person would have expected them. And to think, you know, I mean, and you know, I'm gonna miss, you know, a whole range of things in, you know, this list, but you know, you've had, you know, huge increase in women participation in the labor market, women driving, the introduction of um value added tax, introduction of, you know, tourist visas and the development of a tourism sector. Um you know, uh, energy price reforms, um, you know, changes in the way the, um, you know, the government budget is run, um, huge changes, you know, the development of a debt market, IPO of Aramco, development of the domestic equity market. And, you know, there are many, many reforms, um, you know, that you could go on um, and on listing. And, you know, without you know, Vision 2030 being put in place and the drive of the leadership of Saudi Arabia to to push those reforms, um, you know, we clearly wouldn't have got to where we are from an economic perspective, um, you know, today. So, you know, I think the, you know, 
the broad thing is, uh, you know, at a, you know, at a broad level, Vision 2030 has been a huge success in driving economic change in Saudi Arabia. Um, now, as you get into the specific economic statistics, it becomes, you know, maybe there are areas where you can see success, other areas where it's it's harder to see. And again, you know, the labour market is probably one area where you can obviously see success in terms of more women working, more Saudis in the private sector. The budget, you can see, you know, much higher shares of revenue coming from non-oil sources, um, you know, particularly the value-added tax. The uh, blog I wrote on economic diversification argues you can see signs of progress on economic diversification, although oil still, I think, remains you know, the dominant uh, force there. But in other areas, you know, foreign direct investment would be an example. We haven't really seen much of an uptick there, despite the fact that um, you know, that's clearly something the authorities are very keen on driving. Um, so... I would say, you know, from the statistical point of view, you know, we can point to successes and I suspect we'll see more of those um, going forward. But broadly, in terms of if I take, you know, late 15 to now, the, the changes you see in you know, the economy and in Saudi society are, are dramatic um, and dramatic, I think, in a, in a very positive way. You know, maybe one last thing here as well, it's worth stepping back and saying, um, you know, it's incredibly difficult diversifying an economy which is so reliant on oil. Um, I, you know, I really don't think there's a, a, you know, a comparable example where an economy is trying to diversify when it still has, um, you know, large scale oil reserves and you know, oil revenues available to it. So, you know, it's clearly wishful thinking to think this can happen in a very short period of time. It's going to take years to happen. But, I, you know, from my personal point of view, I see, um, see things heading in a, in a very positive direction. Mr. Tim Callan, visiting fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, formerly IMF mission chief to Saudi Arabia. And as our listeners and viewers have heard here today, a living, breathing fountain of intelligence on the Saudi economy. <laughs> Super fascinating stuff, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you, Richard. I very much enjoyed the conversation. That was our conversation with Tim Callan. Just so good discussing the Saudi economy and Saudi fiscal policy. He knows it inside and out. That was, what did I describe it as the very end there? Uh, he, it's like he's a walking encyclopedia, just a fountain of information. He's been there. And it was, you know, the initial impetus to invite him was his writing on the census. Nobody's really talked about the census. So he had really good insights there. Mm -hmm. Well done, Richard. That was great. Let's get to Yalla. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> All right, number one. <laughs> Saudi Arabia has postponed the fifth Arab-African summit that was scheduled for Friday and will instead host Emergency Arab League and Organization of Islamic Cooperation summits this Friday and Saturday to discuss Israel's war on Gaza. The Saudi foreign ministry said it had reached a decision on Tuesday night after consulting with the Secretariat of the League of Arab States and the African Union Commission to, quote, ensure what political events in the region do not affect that 
political events in the region do not affect the Arab-African partnership, unquote. The Arab League summit will take place on Friday involving most leaders of the member states while the OIC conference to which Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, Raisi has been invited to will be held on Saturday, a source in the ministry said. Super interesting because you have um, what what's happening in Gaza has just completely upended the region, of course, and you're you're seeing it in practical things, you know, things like this shifting around and and you know reprioritizing different events. Um, you know, we 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 included this, Richard, I think, because you know it shows that this is. The situation in Gaza is very serious. Saudi Arabia is taking it very seriously. And so, yeah, I mean, don't have too much to add to this, but uh, we'll be interesting to see what happens out of that Arab League summit and, you know, seeing a unified Arab front on what's happening. Well, I think, yes, we included this because uh, this Gaza situation is such a dilemma for Arab states, GCC states. There's, you know, tremendous, tremendous public support uh, for the Palestinian situation. And there's, you know, justified and genuine outcry about the the deaths that are occurring, you know, in Gaza at the moment. I think we're over 10,000, 40% of those are children. Uh, and it's agonizing. Um, responsible states in the region want to be sympathetic, want to be supportive, want a ceasefire, want the, the killings and the conflict to to stop. But they especially don't want it to spread. And we're talking responsible states in the region, of which Saudi Arabia is at the fore. You know, they've been very supportive of, of uh, ceasefire and, and limiting or eliminating civilian casualties. But they, had, they, didn't, they didn't come out and, uh, you know, support Hamas and what they did. Um, so they're trying to to keep this contained, if at all possible, because they see a larger picture. They want stability in the region. They want to come out, if at all possible, on the other side, hope, you know, with some sort of just accommodation on the occupied territories in Israel. They want and everything they do to build for a better future. And this is a horrible, horrible situation where people are dying, civilians are dying, and, and they feel like they have to manage it in the, in the first place, but also they have to see long-term. And I think these meetings are to sort of get everybody in. Let's talk about this. What's the way to go about this? Let's vent. Uh, let's share. Let's diplomatic. Because it was really interesting that the Jordanian foreign minister um, recently noted, and if you get the Seustic Review, you know this was a quotable. He essentially said, quote, the whole region is sinking in a sea of hatred that will define generations to come, unquote. And again, responsible states are trying to say, all right, let's, let's find a way because we don't want to poison this for generations to come, which is what we're saying. And, and, you know, if we can't find a way, we will. And that will be the detriment to all of us, Israel, not the least. Um, and so I think they're diplomatically trying to find a way. I will also say there was another interesting report. Again, if you get Sus degree, you would have seen it um, put out by Politico talking about uh, there's a mechanism in the U.S. State Department um, that allows uh, foreign service officers to express their opinion on public policy. 
And uh, I'm not sure what the exact term of it is, but it's a, it's essentially it's a memo. And, and she usually spent, kept confidential, but this one, you know, became available. And it was basically saying there's a lot of mid-level and career professionals in the State Department saying uh, they were they were concerned with President Biden's approach and saying, look, there's a there's there's a disconnect between the public and private messaging. You know, the, all the public is seeing a, a great deal of support and love for Israel. They're not seeing the private messaging, messaging, which is, you know, civilian casualties can't be allowed. You have, you know, we're you know advocating for pauses and, and any number of things, and and all the way from the beginning, you know, don't attack Hezbollah, um, you know, delay whatever you're planning to do, you know, just trying somehow to moderate it, and also criticizing them on civilian casualties. And and the point these 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 diplomats are saying is, you know. In the Arab world, they're not seeing any of the private conversations. They just see the public. And this damages our interests in the region. And I guess, you know, you put these two together and you see people trying to figure out how to manage this in the moment, but also how to preserve some hope for the future. And I think that's what these these conferences that Saudi Arabia has convened are all about. You know, one step in, in a process of trying to preserve some hope for the future. I just think that's really well said yeah i mean that's very spot on and 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 i think uh very salient i think yeah we we (laughs) could do like yellow number two yeah that's right (laughs) yellow number two foreign direct investment into saudi arabia rose 22 percent annually last year as the kingdom continues to pursue its economic transformation agenda and open up more sectors for foreign investments Total FDI inflows into the Arab world's largest economy reached 122 billion Saudi rials, $33 billion in 2022, the kingdom's Ministry of Investment said in a statement on Wednesday. Saudi Arabia released the latest statistics following a change in the methodology used for the calculation of FDI inflows. The new methodology, endorsed by the International Monetary Fund, uses an analysis of individual financial statements to produce, quote, highly accurate, unquote, annual numbers instead of the old method of using the accumulation of flows based on estimates. You know, did you have any comment on this? When I read this, the first thing that came to my mind was the Kobayashi Maru. And I don't know if you know what the Kobayashi Maru is, but in Star Trek, it's a classic William Shatner, Captain Kirk thing, sort of one of his origin stories, where when you're trying to be a Starfleet captain, there's this unwinnable test, unwinnable test. And, and everyone, you know, you either, you either, you know, uh, lose your crew or a bunch of civilians are, are killed. You know, it's just an, it's a Sophie's choice. It's a horrible thing. So it's unwinnable. And so in the character, Captain Kirk goes in and the night before he recodes the whole thing. So he goes in and essentially cheats. And so they're all, you know, so he does it and he, you know, makes some decisions and it, and it, because the coding's changed, he comes out successful. Genius. Well, well, and his point is, his point was, you know, they're saying, well, this is unwinnable. You can't do this. No, it's not unwinnable. I recoded it. I mean, isn't that the point? I just won. <laughs> what do you call that? Yeah. <laughs> well, so when, I, when, when I read this, I said, okay, oh, all right. So foreign direct investment, they just changed the methodology and all of a sudden they're, they're, you know, it's roaring. Um, but I was mistaken. Uh, apparently this, um, methodology is in fact much more up to date, much more accurate. It's a methodology that's approved by the IMF. 
and follows international standards. So this is not this is not just gaming the numbers. This was actually we're not really effectively tracking this. And uh, and apparently, you know, they went back and analyzed seventy thousand financial statements covering the last 50, 15 years under these new this new methodology, which turned out a, a different number and a more promising number. All that to say that this was not the Kobayashi Maru. It was legit. And it's been done in concert with, you know, best practices, accounting and, and the IMF and everything. So, you know, kudos to Saudi. Man, you, I didn't know you like Star Trek. I love Star Trek. I was more of a the next generation guy. And then some yeah. of the later ones. Um, yeah. Maybe I should get back into the older ones. Shatner is obviously a legend, but well, if you yeah, like we've got cheesy. another. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but interesting. And and yeah, I mean, hats off to Khaled Al-Fala, His Excellency and um Dr. Saad Al-Shafrani, who's also working on the attracting yeah. foreign investment side, a former guest, as you know, Richard, and friend of ours. Um, yeah. So, yeah, good one. Good one. We're going to stick with the Ministry of Investment, by the way, for the snack shells. I like how Excellent. you did that on this one. So, very good. It's yours. Was it mine? Uh, international investors no longer have to visit a Saudi embassy to get a visa to travel to the kingdom after the process for applying for the permit was moved online. The government has introduced the second phase of, quote, investor visitor, unquote, e-visa service, expanding its coverage from nearly 60 nations to include all countries nationwide, according to the SBA. The e-visa can be used for multiple entries and has a validity period of up to one year. Uh, Some beneficiaries may receive access immediately, enabling them to explore investment opportunities to the king directly, directly. This expansion includes individuals from countries listed on the Invest in Saudi Arabia platform, those holding valid tourist or business visas from the U.S., the U.K. or Schengen countries, and those with permanent residency in the U.S., the U.K. or EU countries. Yeah, this follows last week's story that you had uh, as your one big thing, the Gregorian calendar. Is is this the front page of the of Arab news on Friday morning for the week, weekend edition? Probably not. <laughs> Does this directly affect pretty much everyone that visits Saudi Arabia or that is not living directly in the kingdom? Yes. And this is going to be the type of thing where we will get asked about this pretty much more than anything else. And if you Google visa Saudi Arabia, this will now be the number one story. And this is a huge deal like this. We, we always love to tell the story of how hard visas used to be able to get even for yeah. guys like us. And now it's just getting easier, easier and easier. And yeah, this is, this is really good. If you're looking to invest in Saudi Arabia, do you want to have to go through an extra hoop and go to an embassy and go through the process? Or do you want to just say, Hey, like I'm interested in this, let me in. I'd like to invest. So, I mean, this streamlines that process. It will have a direct boost to FDI and to, the, I should say the all important F, FDI. I mean, they, they really want foreign investors into Saudi. They have for some time. So I think this is good. Yeah. And it's uh, just in the last day or so, the GCC announced that they're going to unify the GCC visa. So for all six GCC states, probably effective in late 24, 25, maybe. So just making it easier to get around and get mm-hmm. in. Yep. For and, it, and it is. And if you want to visit Saudi Arabia, if you're not an investor and you want to visit Saudi Arabia, if you get want to apply for a visa... I mean, it should take you 15 minutes max. I mean, they almost email you before you're done saying, here you go, here's your visa. You can do it when you arrive as well, depending on where you're coming from. So it's just a huge improvement. Yella number four, Saudi Arabia was recently crowned the Overwatch World Cup champions at the Overwatch World Cup, becoming the first team from the Middle East to win the tournament. After a hard fought grand final against China, 
Saudi Arabia took home the first first place prize of $125,000 out of the total $365,000 prize pool. The Anaheim Convention Center in Anaheim, California hosted the event. The Overwatch World Cup is unique in that professional Overwatch players get the opportunity to represent their home country in competition. 16 nations participated in the event with five teams from each region. The three regions were the Americas, Europe, and the Middle East, Asia, uh, the Americas, Europe, and the Middle East and Asia Pacific. thought this was cool. I mean, I don't have much to say on it. I mean, I guess Saudi Arabia is the first Middle Eastern country to win it. And side note, I guess China has now come in second place for three years running, which is heartbreaking. Um, but uh, big deal. I mean, it, it, that's a big prize for one thing. But also, as we know, there's a huge e-gaming population globally and also one in Saudi. So this is quite the coup for the Saudi team representing its country. Just Googled what is Overwatch. I have no idea. And yeah, it's a first person shooter game. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Congrats to congrats to Saudi, Team Saudi Arabia for running the table in Anaheim. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yellow number five. The Red Sea International Film Festival has unveiled the lineup for its competition Arab Spectacular Strands. The festival will take place from November 30th to December 9th in the port city of Jeddah under the theme quote, your stories, your festival, unquote. Red Sea uh, Film Festival's lineup throws a spotlight on films made in the MENA region and includes 36 feature-length and short films from Saudi Arabia, including documentaries and titles produced by the Red Sea Film Foundation. The competition strand includes 17 films from Asia, Africa, and the Arab world with a jury presided over by the filmmaker Baz Luhrmann. Shall we... Richard, right after Evolution, we could jump right over oh, to Jetta, cool. check out the Red Sea oh, that'd be cool. uh, Film Festival. This is awesome. This is um, this thing gets bigger and better every year. Again, don't have too much to add to it, but I think, um, yeah, I actually can't do this. If I don't come back pretty soon after that <laughs> event, I, the, my family will not be here. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a road warrior. But, right? Yeah, it's... it's uh, it's a lot, but, but Richard, what's cool about this is this is, you know, what an 11 day festival. Well, uh, and it's the third one. I mean, this is, you know, it's becoming an institution with a, each year, sort of a bigger slew and, and more Saudi and Arab and, and more exciting and more Western. And it, it, it you know, it's, it's like anything it, you, they start it and then they build it each year. Yeah. I will be in Jeddah on Monday, by the way. So there will be no film festival, but the weather should be nicer than what we are getting. Actually, today was really nice, Richard, here. But uh, oh, it started as you raining know, here. It started raining there. Okay, cool. So that's yeah. coming this way in yeah. short time. Oh, man. Well, anyway. Um, yellow number six. Saudi, the Saudi Fund for Development will sign agreements worth 2 billion rials, $533 million with African countries. Saudi Finance Minister Mohammed Al Jadan said, Thursday during the Saudi Arab African Economic Conference in Riyadh, S-A-A-E-C, SAIC. <laughs> uh, we are working with partners to support Ghana and other countries regarding their debt, Jadan added. Saudi Investment Minister Khaled Al-Fala later said at the same conference that the kingdom's over $700 billion wealth fund, the public investment fund, you may have heard of it, will make some game-changing, quote, investments in Africa. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Saudi Arabia yeah. sees itself as sort of the nexus, the pivot for the region. You know, Europe, Africa, uh, 
Asia. And, um, you know, they're heavily invested in Africa and they should be. I mean, I think there's 1.3 billion residents, inhabitants in Africa now at 2050, they're projected to be 2.5 billion. Basically 25% of the population by 2050 will be on the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. um, 70 billion already invested by Saudi Arabia and Africa is according to the minister. Sorry to cut you off there. No, 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 that's good, good stuff. And, um, you know, uh, I guess the top five grow fastest growing economies in Africa, according to the World Economic Forum, uh, two of them, Ethiopia and Tanzania, are right across you know the water from Saudi in East Africa. Of course, they have a long-standing relationship with Sudan, and as as the minister said, they're trying to help out Ghana. They're trying to be you know productive, helpful players across the region, and and obviously for their own self-interest, they're investing and they see growth and that sort of thing. But it's also I think it's probably it's very well received in these countries because it's investment uh, from essentially a local, a neighbor. Um, and so smart move. Yeah. Smart move. And I'm glad you said that. Uh, it is a, probably a really good business move. I mean, they're, they're probably oh, yeah. making some pretty solid investments with the Saudi fund for development, which is sort of a longstanding investment vehicle they've used in, uh, globally, but I mean, you know, this is their neighborhood and especially as a regional kind of emerging power, I guess you would describe it economically and diplomatically and, I mean, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see more on this. Uh, but yeah, Richard, very good one. Nicely really done. great conversation. Yeah, 111 episodes in, 112 next week with Dr. Mahmoud Khan from Evolution Foundation. Uh, we never tell that we never leak the guest the previous week. Uh, but we're doing it this time because it's just such a cool get. And he's <laughs> just it's going to be such a great combo. I can't wait to do it. So. Richard, thank you very much. See you next week. I'll be you. piping awesome. in from Jeddah. So I will hopefully yeah, see we'll... you. And I hopefully it's nice outside my window and maybe raining on yours and I can have a smile. Well, but we'll and, see. And you know, the only thing is, is, is you'll probably be, you know, be red eyed and jet lagged, hanging in there, trying to muscle through. <laughs> yep. Uh, red eyed, jet lagged, full of food. Caffeinated. Just absolute caffeinated, obviously, always and full of rice. So uh, that's my, that's a good program I have. So uh, see you, see you over there together soon in just a few weeks. And I'll see you next week on the 966. The 966. Awesome. Take care.